Welcome. It's great to be here. It's great to be together. Um, it's pretty cool to do church in a little bit of a challenging environment, eh? Tucked up and getting warm. It's a little closer to the hardcore early church Bible stories we used to read, uh, that we do read, but uh, speak of kind of following Jesus through thick and thin. And actually, it's probably appropriate to the message I'm sharing. Um, but I do want to celebrate a team. They're in the middle of us at the moment. It's called the Sound Team. And um, before you applaud them, which you will do in a little bit, these guys about six weeks ago were reintroduced to the sound desk at the back of the ins- inside auditorium. And if you ever stood in front of that, you feel like you're about to launch a Boeing 747. It's like, it's so overwhelming staring at that thing. You, you're not sure if you're doing sound or if you're taking a plane into the sky. But the point is, is these guys have been tirelessly learning that. And then we as a leadership team said, actually, guys, we're going to give you a new sound desk and you're doing everything outdoors. Would you mind learning a new airplane to fly? And uh, they just tirelessly learn new things and keep doing an amazing job and volunteering and making it all work. So let's give them a round of applause for making that happen. And... Of course, to those of you that aren't here who did it last week and the weeks before, thank you to you guys as well. Um, I am reading an interesting text today. We're going through the book of Mark, and we go through it one uh, passage at a time, and we're walking our way through so that by the end of 2021, we will have been through the whole of the book of Mark, and we'll be able to pat ourselves on the back and say, we as a church are walking through the scriptures together, and God is teaching us, and he is growing us, and we are simply letting God lead us one passage at a time. And that means that if you read your Bible, you don't get to just skip to your favorite verse all the time. You've got to go to all the verses and to all the words that Jesus said in the scriptures. Next, this is for you. It's not my underwear. It's a beanie, but it's annoying me. And uh, we are going to look today at a challenging passage. And, And it actually is the kind of passage that reminds me of a few things when I was a kid. I remember when I was about 10 or 11 years old, and I first got introduced to a rifle. I went with a group of people, and one of them owned this rifle. It was a triple two. And I remember the first time I held a rifle. Do you remember the first time maybe you held something like that that you knew had the potential to do great harm? I don't actually remember exactly what it felt like. I remember the talk that I got from Uncle Bob who told us what this thing could do. And some of the ground rules before you get this thing in your hand, how to hold it, how not to hold it, what you must do and what you must not do. And as a 10-year-old, your eyes go wide because you realize that as this thing comes into your hands, you are holding something with huge potential. I also remember when my, um, my brother, how's that? When my brother took me to Durban Beachfront, he had been teaching me to surf for a while, and I was sort of 13 years old, and I had been surfing for two or three years, but this day was like no other day. You know, normally when you go out and you surf waves, waves feel like waves, And then you get to a day where waves feel like mountains of water moving. And I looked out that day, and my brother said, it's bigger than usual. And I remember going, whoa, I can see it's bigger than usual. We're going to have to jump off the pier. Whoa. And these are the ground rules for what you do if you're in trouble. And this is what you need to do if you see someone else 
in trouble. And it was like so clear to me the stakes were higher than our normal surfs. Things were happening here today that weren't like the normal surfs we'd been in. And I remember the sun was setting and the wind was blowing and the waves were good. But because he's nine years older than me, he was giving me a talk because he knew he was pushing me out of my comfort zone. I think what we're about to read in this passage of Scripture is a bit like that. Where Jesus has been walking with his disciples, and he has been showing them all kinds of amazing stuff. In so many ways, Jesus' one-liner that he keeps saying to his disciples is he keeps going, the kingdom of God is like. And he's helping these disciples of his to understand who they are in the kingdom, what it's going to look like to live out this kingdom adventure. And they have been walking face to face with the one who breathed over creation and life came about. The one who understands how the the world works. The one who understands how our hearts work. The one who is able to create from nothing something. Who is the perfect picture of love. He knows how to speak truth at just the right time. He knows how to speak a word of mercy and grace at just the right time. He is the walking depiction of who God is and what love is all about. And these disciples are getting introduced to the new kingdom of God right in front of them. And they have seen all manner of things. Just a couple of chapters earlier, Jesus has taken three of his disciples up a mountain and they've seen God. They actually heard the, the voice of God. This is my son who whom I love, listen to him. Three of the disciples heard God. Amazing. Then they walk down the mountain and Jesus walks into a crowd and there's this oppressed boy and in beautiful mercy he comes and he delivers this young child and he sort of enters into a whole new trajectory in life. His world has changed because of Jesus. And Jesus throughout has been teaching what the kingdom is like, and he's using all kinds of metaphors, and their eyes are wide, and their world is totally changed. It's upside down from their old fishing and tax-collecting lives. Everything is different because Jesus has come in. And just before this that we're about to read, I feel like I get a little window into what Jesus is going through here. Because he's, he's been looking at his disciples and they were arguing about who's the greatest. And, you know, like all men, we're quite egotistical and we, we pretend we're not and we pretend we don't want to be great and we're happy to defer. But something in every man goes, I want to be great. I want to do something great. And Jesus realizes that the ego has emerged and he gently teaches them and he pulls a child into the front and he says, if you want to be great, you're going to have to be a servant. And he brings one of his life world-changing teachings and he brings a kid in front and he says, if you want to be great, you're going to need to be like one of these. And you're going to need to learn to love like one of these. And you're going to need to learn to be humble like them. And he takes the ego off the table and he doesn't tell them they can't be great. He says, this is what greatness is going to be redefined as. It's a kingdom of love. And his disciples are shut up. They don't know what to say. They thought that you know, it was, it was going to be glamour and glory at the right and the left hand of Jesus in this political kingdom. And he's just been telling them, I'm actually going to die. And I'm going to rise again. And my kingdom is going to be a kingdom of love where we're going to conquer the world through sacrifice and through mercy. And it's not like you expect. There is no political kingdom I'm, I'm building. I'm building a kingdom of love. And they're slowly getting it. But as I think he has this child right next to him, and he realizes the stakes are high, 
he begins to look them in the eyes and he begins to teach them that the stakes really are high. And he begins to say to them, your life matters. Your ego isn't just something that lives in you and doesn't have any impact on other people. The way you manage what's going on inside here is going to radically shape everything around you. And what's happening inside of your heart is going to, happen, is going to impact your friendships. It's going to impact your marriage. It's going to impact your parenting. It's going to impact your work life. It's going to impact everything. The stakes are high. That's what he's trying to say here. And he wants us to understand because he's got a beautiful identity. We've been through a beautiful journey reminding us that we as children of God have this beautiful identity given us. And the world's our oyster and we sit it in heavenly places and we'll talk about that. But now he's looking and he's saying, you have a rifle in your hand. You're about to go out into a deep ocean with some big waves in the kingdom of God. And stuff is about to happen. The stakes are high. Now, I've set the scene for what is going to be a challenging passage of Scripture. So let's look at it. Verse 42 of chapter 9. It's on your handouts if you've got that. I would love a handout if there's a spare. It says this, chapter 9, verse 42. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God uh, with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can, it, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. This is God's word. Anybody like to come preach on that now? Swap over with me. Hope you took your vitamins this morning. That is a serious passage of Scripture. But actually, I think the context does help, right? You see, Jesus is feeling an awareness towards his disciples that he is sending them on to the greatest adventure ever. And if you are standing at the front lines of a great battle and you've got all your soldiers and you know that this is the great battle that is going to be decisive, you are going to make sure they understand the stakes are high and that what they do doesn't just impact them, it impacts the fellow soldier, it impacts the nation behind them. It is hugely important. We live in a very individualistic world. We live in a world such that basically we say what you do doesn't matter uh, and, and, and really doesn't impact what I do. It's, it's you do you and I'll do me. And we live in hyper-individualism, but we haven't computed the fact that actually what we do impacts everyone around us. We radically impact each other. In some ways, I think COVID was a real awakener because suddenly we had this new global accountability and we said, actually, what you do does matter. 
And two kingdoms emerged. In fact, multiple kingdoms emerged. There was the mask kingdom and the anti-mask kingdom. There's the vaccine kingdom and the anti-vaccine kingdom. And I could kind of stir the pot for a while and we'd probably have some, you know, we'd start flinging sticks across at each other if we, if we started talking about this long enough. Because we started to realize, actually, what you do does matter. It does impact me. It is going to shape the way that I think, I travel, I get around the world, I don't get around the world. The economy is impacted. You name it. We have these views and we create kingdoms around them and we understand that our lives and actions impact each other. And Jesus got this better than anyone and he still does today. That your life matters. And he calls us to account to a very high and beautiful standard. And he calls us here to sacrifice. He calls us to radical sacrifice. And we shouldn't be surprised by sacrifice. We shouldn't think that sacrifice calling from us, from Jesus, is something uh, unexpected. In fact, most of us expect sacrifice if we're going to do something great. Many of us in this uh, place, uh, we sacrifice all the time. Think about it. Uh, some of us sacrifice uh, running you know, maybe 50 to 100 Ks every week. Because we have a goal. We sacrifice. We wake up in the dark to get to gym or to get to other spaces. Or we, we cut out whole food groups because of things we want to accomplish or do. We know that inherently, or maybe it's a career, we sacrifice time with loved ones because we believe in something we want to accomplish. We don't actually believe that great things don't come with sacrifice. We should, we should expect that the creator of the world, who's calling us to greatness, would also call us to some sacrifice. Now, I think there's a couple of key terms we need to get our heads around if we're going to really understand this teaching because there are some things that are a little tricky in it, in the teaching. The first one is the word, uh, uh, firstly, the, the word little ones. Who's Jesus talking about? He says, if anyone causes these little ones to stumble, this word little ones uh, seems like he's either talking about the children that he had just brought in front of him or there's a chance he's talking about any new or young disciples of Jesus, people who are coming to faith. Or maybe even, uh, some theologians say he's just talking about disciples in general, people who are choosing to follow him. That's probably what he's talking about in this passage. The next big word that he uses lots of is the word hell. He, says, he talks about hell. That's a, a sermon in itself and a teaching in itself. But I think what's important here to understand is that this word hell comes from the Greek word Gehenna. And Gehenna was actually a place. It was a place outside the city of Jerusalem um, where basically rubble was taken, all kinds of um, waste. They would just, it would be burning almost all the time. Stuff that they didn't need or want, they would chuck it there, and it would be just this perpetual, disgusting place where stuff was being burned and dealt with. It was out of sight, out of mind, but everyone knew it existed. And it was a depiction of death, decay, and destruction. Nobody wanted to be at Gehenna. It was terrible. The other important fact about Gehenna, or uh, the word hell here, is that it was outside of the city, which was very crucial. Remember, Jerusalem was the city of God. It was the place where God's presence dwelt. This was outside of the city. And so it's really important to understand because we've got so many medieval conceptions of hell, which are basically, you know, pitchforks and tongues and snakes and uh, whatever, uh, what are some of the other ones you can imagine? And so much of our view of hell 
still comes out of the sort of 1400s to 1600s. It's these funny images of a guy who's got a pitchfork in his hand and maybe like a, two, a, a split tongue or something like that. And you think of hell and it's kind of like black and red is hell and gold and white clouds is, is heaven. And you kind of go, well, depending on what your color scheme is, one of them's a little better or worse than the other. But, but that's not exactly what Jesus is talking about here. Hell is fundamentally awful because it's away from God. It is a place outside of the presence of God. It is a place where nothing could be worse comprehended by a Jewish person than to be away apart from God. Because apart from God, there is no life. It is death in itself. That was so crucial. It was a place of destruction. It wasn't a place where there was a kind of this guy with horns and a pitchfork. That's, that's too tame. The tragedy of any description of hell was it was away from the presence of God. It wasn't with him. The other important word is stumble. He says if, if, if anything causes you to stumble or if you cause anyone else to stumble, he uses this word stumble. And the word stumble in uh, various parts of the scripture here talks about to put a stumbling block or an impediment in the way upon which another may trip or fall. It's to entice to sin, to cause someone else to sin, or cause a person to begin to distrust and desert one who he ought to trust and obey. That's what the word stumble is. It's to entice to, to trust something they shouldn't trust, and they desert someone that they should love and obey. That's kind of what's going on there. And so this just gives us a little context. Are you, are you guys still with me? Good. So Jesus brings this big teaching. And he says it would be better for you, actually, to have a millstone tied around your neck or to have your hand chopped off if it causes you to sin or your eye gouged out rather than to sin. Take a deep breath. This is hectic stuff. Is, is Jesus being literal here? The answer is no. Some people have taken Jesus literally by the way and have done really crazy stuff in the name of this very text. But it's to miss completely that Jesus is always aiming at the heart. This is such a profound teaching because Jesus is looking at this and he's going, if anything causes you to stumble or another to stumble, then you need to cut it out. You need to deal with it decisively and strongly. He's bringing a teaching where he's going, we're about to get into the ocean and the waves are big and you could get hurt if you don't understand this. You're about to hold a rifle and this thing is dangerous. You could do great good, but you could do great harm. We better talk about this thing. You're about to enter into a life in the kingdom of God and you need to know that the stakes are high and you can do great good because now you are given great authority and power to love the world and to bring great good. But listen to me, there's also great potential for pain and for hardship. And anyone who's followed Jesus for some time in the life of the church will know that you've experienced some hurt, some disappointment, some pain, some letdowns. Like Tasha said, some of the parts of our life have felt shattered and broken. And some of that may be because we didn't actually listen to this teaching. We didn't realize that actually there's stuff that each of us need to keep facing. There's stuff in our lives that we need to keep dealing with decisively and strongly in the context of community under the grace and love of Jesus to realize my life matters 
Your life counts and who you're becoming really matters. You have a new identity as a child of God. Now you need to start living like that. And we live in the overlap of the ages where we've still got fallen, broken parts of our life. And although we are children of God, if we put our faith in Jesus, and although our future uh, now and into eternity is immensely bright, we are still fighting so many shadow selves that keep wanting to take us down, to distract us, to, to uh, kind of cause all kinds of disillusionment in our life. So I want to just redefine sin for many of us, because so many of us, when we think of sin, we just write a long list of things that are naughty that we mustn't do. And it's such an unhelpful description of sin. You see, Jesus talks about that word, if anyone causes them to stumble or to sin, it's to, it, it's to miss the mark of God's best for us. And if you only see sin as naughty things you mustn't commit, you sit on your bum and you do nothing and you think you're a good Christian. When so much of the life of following Jesus is not just about what I don't do, so much of the life of Jesus is actually about what I do do and get to do as a privilege. And as a church, we've got these three things, and you'll see that little Venn diagram on your paper which we think are the three big calls of Jesus on our lives. In fact, he said them to his disciples. He said, come, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Basically, the three big things to, to live out in, in our call to Jesus is to be with him, to become like him, and then to love the world like he loves the world. Be with him, be present to God, to become like him, to become like Jesus, formation into the image of Jesus, and then mission, to go love the world like he loves the world. And if you look at this passage of Scripture and you slice it that way, you realize that in so many ways, Jesus looks at our life and he says, welcome to the greatest adventure of your life. Your life counts. Now cut out everything that's going to stop you doing those three things. Get rid of it decisively, ruthlessly, courageously, because anything that stops you from enjoying the presence of God, anything that stops you from uh, living on the mission of God, anything that stops you from becoming like Jesus is a hindrance. It's a danger to your life, and it could be painful to others. So I just want to go through those three things and simply hopefully inspire us freshly to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and uh, do what Jesus did. So firstly, be with Jesus. What stops you or others from being with Jesus? Because Jesus says, cut it off. Deal with it decisively. Do whatever you can, whatever you need to, to make sure that you can be with Jesus as a person. Learn to enjoy his presence, become more present to him, become the person who actually knows what God is like in prayer, in, in dependence on him. I think of that lovely story of Mary and Martha. There was so much social pressure on Mary to basically do what all women would do the moment you enter into a home. If a rabbi comes in a home, here's what happens. The men gather around the rabbi and they sit at his feet and they start chatting. You know what the women do? Move into the kitchen and start preparing food. That's what happened in the ancient Near East. Pretty much in every home. It was like total clockwork. Arrive, rabbi, men sit and enjoy the rabbi. Women go and make the food. And Mary says, no, I'm made to be with Jesus. 
How can I go with social protocol right now when I am made to be in the presence of my maker? He is what I need more than anything else. And she steps out of what is normative so that she can be with God. And she sits at his feet and she does this elaborate gesture which was uh, to pour perfume on him and to anoint him. And to do, that, uh, to do this radical gesture of love and tenderness towards him. She cuts off that thing in her life that says, I must just go do what I always do. I must just continue in the habits I'm going in. I, I don't know what your habits may be that cut you off from just being with Jesus a little. For me, it screens a lot of the time. I need to cut them off. Parent my phone, parent my TV, put it to bed so that I get to bed on time so I can wake up on time to be with Jesus. Sounds so elementary, but you know what? It's so fundamental to just being with Jesus. Hey, maybe it is some other form of distraction. Maybe it's exactly what I described. Maybe it's a a, a habit or an addiction of yours that simply just steals so much time that you simply need to, like Jesus said, cut it off, gouge it out, deal with it decisively because you and I are made to be with Jesus. We're meant to be in the presence of Jesus. What barriers are between you and enjoying the presence of God? Unconfessed sin? Any good parent knows, hey, you need to say sorry sometimes. You just keep pretending it's all good and you haven't come to Jesus and gone, oh God, it's not that good. I'm sorry. Thank you that you forgive me. That sense of who we are becomes so fresh to us. What do you need to cut out, cut off, deal with decisively to just freshly enjoy being with him? Secondly, to become like him. That's the other key call of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Become like him. Let our character and who we are become more like Jesus. This is not, again, just about moral behavior. This is actually about a person who is becoming more fully like Jesus in that they are more content in their own skin. They're more comfortable to live in this broken world. They're more able to love and be loved. Becoming like Jesus is not simply going, I haven't done anything naughty for months now. No, no, I am content. I'm decreasingly anxious. I'm more able to love and be loved. I am more present to the people around me. I'm a better listener, not a worse listener. I am becoming like Jesus. What do we need to do to find ourselves slowing enough to let Jesus transform us into his image, to be present enough to Jesus that he can speak to us, he can coach our hearts, he can retrain us into his image and likeness? I I don't know the answer for you. My buddy was telling me a story for him, and I think it's true for many of us, but I think many of us struggle with various addictions. I think we we, we have different categories of addictions. The the super obvious ones are are the ones where there's substances involved, and so that's an easy one to kind of describe. You know, it's alcohol, it's uh, um, any other substances. Maybe that's the least subtle. Then there's the more subtle ones like uh, cell phones or shopping because we all do it. We go, oh, I'm not addicted. That's just like what everyone does. Then there's the more, even more subtle ones, which is things like career, finances, greed. And we can, we can hide that really well. But the point is, is our hearts long for something and we're addicted to stuff and we don't know how to stop wanting that thing. And we disguise it under all kinds of different guises. The point is, is I had a buddy who told me this story. He was sitting in the parking lot. He had basically eventually given in and said, I need to go to a recovery course. I'm an addict. 
got to face it. His was blatant. It was obvious he was struggling with alcohol. And he drove there himself. Knew he needed to do it. Sat in the parking lot. Held onto the door handle. Then let it go. Said, what if, what's it going to be like in there? What are they going to do to me? How are they going to treat me? How ashamed am I going to feel? But I must go and holds on to the door handle again. But I really don't want to be humbled. I don't want to be humiliated. Let's it go again. Takes a deep breath. Opens the door handle. Walks out into a hall of strangers. And starts the journey of a lifetime. And has never looked back. Because he started to face his thing. And it was his journey. And I'm not telling us that we all need a 12-step recovery course. I'm telling us that we all need to get out of the car in some way or another. We all need to cut something out. We all need to take some step towards increasingly going, I want to become like Jesus. My primary goal is to do everything I can to become like him because who I become impacts not only where I go, but where other people go as well because your life matters. It really counts. Would you get out of the car today in whatever courage you need to do? Maybe it's to say, hey, I've got an issue. Pray with me. Maybe it's to ask a friend to walk a journey with you. Maybe it's to tell a spouse that you've got some stuff that you need help with. Maybe it's to apologize. Maybe it's to get on your knees before Jesus when you get home and say, help me, this thing is taking me down, and I want to become like you, and it is causing me to stumble. And it's actually causing others to stumble because we're all missing out on who you're becoming, and we need you. And the world needs you. And the kingdom is going to use you if you would keep letting God sort that stuff out because he loves you. Third one is a lot shorter, to learn to love like Jesus loved. See, his disciples weren't simply on this mission to be with him and to become like him. He was uh, bent on sending his disciples into the world to make a difference. You and I are not made to simply just sit here and do nothing and not make a difference. We're not meant to pitch up a church, give some finances, pray a few prayers, and uh, kind of go back into the world. We are made for global adventure. We're meant to be the ones who are so caught up in the glory of the kingdom of God and what's going on in the world that we're going, wow, God, I don't have enough lifetimes to do what you're doing in the world, but can I just spend this one as well as I possibly can? Think about it. Even in verse 42, Jesus says, if if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, he's saying, your life matters and who you're impacting. And then in verse 50, he says, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves. It was a flavorant and a preservative. He used it so often to talk about impacting society and culture, taking the kingdom forward, preserving kingdom culture, and transforming culture into the kingdom. That's what Jesus continuously talks about. When I came to faith in Jesus, you know what people used to save their money to do? Not to go on holidays to the Maldives. When I first came to, Jesus, to, to, to faith in Jesus, the community I was a part of, I used to hear this story all the time. I'm saving up because I so badly want to get to Lesotho. Lesotho, what do you want? Oh, oh it must be to go skiing there. I've heard of Tiffendel. Amazing. No, no, no. I want to go to, I can't even remember. Is it Maseru? I think that's the capital town. There. I want to go to Maseru because Moses and their church need help. Really? 
And, and what, do you, what about leave? I'm saving my leave because I want to get into that nation. And, and then somebody else, I want to go to Madagascar. I want to go here because I want to extend the kingdom of God. I'm not telling you to save all your money and your leave to go to the nations. But I am suggesting we save some of it. And we start looking at our lives through the lens of what can we sow? And what could we be a part of that goes beyond ourselves? Because the happiest people are the people who've learned to forget themselves. The happiest people are the people who aren't trying to line their pockets with more, but are trying to fill their lives with more and more kingdom experiences and to love people the way Jesus loves them and to learn to take the message to two places, our neighbors and the nations of the world. Jesus finishes his ministry on earth. He's done everything he can, and he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations. And they literally did. They started in Jerusalem, then they went to Samaria, then they went beyond, and Jesus told them they would go to the ends of the earth. And Paul got as far as probably 2,000 k's from where he started. That's a long way when you don't have airplanes. He went and he went and he went. Some say Thomas got all the way to India. I wonder where God's calling us. Just this week, took a few of us, uh, up, a few of our leaders up to Langabon to ask the question, what could God be doing with us there? How could we serve and, and ex- uh, kind of extend the kingdom with some of the churches there? How can we strengthen them? All four of us drove home from Langabon going, God, use us. We want to be part of a story that's bigger than Common Ground Bloberg and what we can do here because it's magnificent. But we don't want to just reach our neighbors. We want to reach the nations of the world. Jen and Fab up to Mozambique at the end of the year. Built a friendship with a guy who's starting a little house church there. What could it mean for us to partner and strengthen these guys and, and see Aaron and the crew starting to, to see more fruit and, and reach the little town of Tofu? I don't know. But maybe you or I could find ourselves going and being part of that because our hearts are made for more than just our little local story, and our local story is majestic. But we meant to have both. So what do we need to cut off? I don't know, maybe a subscription or two. Instead of putting that money there, we put it there, and we say, actually, that could accumulate. That could be an air ticket. That could be a bus ticket. That could just be a giving gift to that church or to those people. I don't know. Let's start somewhere. Let's put this message out by faith and say, God, we want to live beyond ourselves. We want to cut off everything and deal decisively with anything that stops us or others enjoying your presence, becoming like you, and going on mission for you. Sound good? Let's stand as a way of saying, God, we're here for you. Use us. Why don't you close your eyes and pray? Not sure what God's saying to you. Something probably has stood out in this message of being decisive and courageous. But all of us stand at the edge of great adventure. As a surfer, the thought of going into big, exciting waves stirs my heart. It might not for you. But for all of us, the thought of adventure in the kingdom, closeness to Jesus, becoming like Jesus, or mission with Jesus, should increasingly move us and stir us. There's no higher privilege, Jesus, than to be with you. 
Won't you just affirm that in your own words now? Just affirm your desire to be with God, to know Him better, to discern what it's like to be with Him, to learn to pray more, to learn to pray in line with His heart. Invite Him to teach you to be present to Him. The wonder of the gospel is that He's present to us. It's often just that we're not present to Him. Jesus, you died on the cross, not just as a radical act of sacrifice, but as a radical act of love to bring us back to you. This morning, we want to decisively and ruthlessly try to eliminate that which stops us from enjoying you. God, we affirm the beautiful things of life. Waves, good food, delicious tasting things, wonderful vistas, high mountains. We don't cut out things to hurt our lives. We cut out things because you are glorious. We don't cut out those views, those waves, those mountains, those flavors, unless we become addicted to them, God. Unless they become a hindrance to us seeing that the maker of those things is the true gift. At that point, we may fast from them. We may cut them out for a season because we want you. We want to see the giver, not the the gift. Jesus, help us to become more like you. Won't you pray that prayer just under your breath to say, Jesus, I want to become like you. That would be the outcome of my life is to want to become more like you. Maybe you want to say, Jesus, I realize that who I'm becoming radically impacts the people around me. I'm sorry for not acknowledging that sometimes. I'm sorry for pretending that's not true. And maybe you want to pray the prayer like Isaiah. Here I am, Lord, send me. Where do you need me to go, God? Is it to the neighbors next door? Do I need to cut off some fencing? Do I need to sit on, the, on the, the driveway a little more to meet some people? Is that my courageous act? Do I need to save some money to go to another nation, to give to another community? Jesus, this morning, we're not sure what, I don't know what every person's next steps are. I do know that you're at work in us, that you're calling us to more. I pray for every person here who's new to faith, still uncertain about faith, that this talk wouldn't scare them off but would make them feel more safe than ever, that you care, that you create healthy and beautiful rules of engagement that inspire us to the more that you have for us. I feel like some people here are longing for adventure. I feel like Jesus saying, come with me, I will do you good. (laughs) You want adventure, I will take you where you've never been before. I'll take you inward into parts of your heart that I'll love you that you never knew possible. And I'll take you outwards to parts of the world you didn't know existed. And I'll teach you to love and I'll teach you to be loved. Give me your life. Don't give me your strengths. Give me your whole life. And I'll take it and I will do you good. And I will love you better than anything or anyone could ever love you. Jesus, thank you for this calm day that just symbolizes your gentle breeze of grace over our lives. 
Holy Spirit, wash over each of us as we choose today to continue to follow you, to walk with you and become like you in your presence. Show us who to love, empowered by your Spirit, as delight-filled sons and daughters of the King, seated close to you, willing to serve. Amen. Amen.